Welcome to Exceptional Education, the education podcast by ANZ UK. Welcome to the ANZ UK Exceptional Education Early Childhood Edition Podcast. Well, after an extended Christmas break, I am back bringing you some exceptional stories from across the early childhood sector. Today, I'll be chatting to Ange. Ange is one of our educators here at ANZ UK. She's actually a language lead expert. If you don't know what that is, we'll be getting to that, so don't stress. Uh, She'll be giving us a better insight into the important language use around children and how it can both positively and negatively impact them, among a ton of other great insights from her. So let's get to it. Okay, today we are joined by Ange, who is one of our educators here at ANZ UK. She's also currently a language lead learning expert. So Ange, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kale. It's great to be here. No worries. This is this has been in the pipe works for a little while now. I know we've spoke about this catching up at the back back end, maybe even close to the middle of last year. Um, that's something we've been wanting to catch up about and have you on and and chat about a few exciting projects and and stuff you've got going on. Definitely, I think it was post second lockdown that we started the ball rolling. So yeah, it's it's hard to keep up nowadays. It's <laughs> it was yeah. some time last year. Um. So, Ange, th- again, thanks for joining me. Let's let's jump straight into it. I mean, tell us a bit about yourself, where you come from, where'd you grow up, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I grew up in Melbourne, born and bred, uh, travelled in my 20s. I have always had a love of learning and interest in how to teach different concepts to different people. I remember in grade one wanting to become a teacher for the first time and feeling like I had... A good way of explaining something but also being aware that I was a kid and who would listen to me and wondering if it was because it was one of the only professions I was exposed to that that was why I wanted to become a, a teacher so I was a bit of a deep thinker um, you know got labeled as shy and so it's really from those early memories of being a kid and loving learning and teaching and you know, being conscious of the label that I was given. We often assign children labels such as shy or confident or sporty and, you know, later in life reflecting on the impact of that on children as they're building their their identities. So that's where it began for me. My mum's been in education for over 50 years. She just retired recently. And so it's sort of the family business. I've got a lot of aunties who are teachers as well. And so it is all around me. <laughs> and right. uh, yeah, so I, it's a lifelong love. And uh, more recently, I've sequenced a scope of skills to do with social and emotional learning in the early years, as well as emerging literacy and numeracy um, with a keen eye for the children with uh, learning needs such as dyslexia. English as a second language and um, all those different thinkers that we're thankfully beginning to embrace in education more recently. Yeah, amazing. And this is one of the the reasons I was so excited to have you on is um, something we haven't tackled on this podcast or, or something we probably don't hear about too much is, uh, you know, working with children with dys- dyslexia and um close something close to my heart i i do suffer from dyslexia as well and i went through it in primary school when it probably wasn't 
um, as well known <laughs> back then, or um, there weren't any methods to deal with it, and it was better just to let me get on with my day than sort of come up with plans. And um, I guess that's what where the the language lead learning leads into it for yourself, and that's sort of um, the connection there. So we'll get into that in a second. Um, but I mean, I want to go back to the grade one. You decided right. I, teaching sort of the course for me was there ever a deviation that sort of thought maybe there's another path or was it since then that's what your focus has been uh there's been an interest in the arts definitely um in visual art uh writing as well i've written a few children's stories and things like that but that you know children's stories again i always end up coming back to yeah. the teaching and helping children i remember um, before I started the Bachelor in Education, you know, the fork in the road of, you know, do I pursue uh, freelance, being a freelance artist or, and, you know, studying that at university or becoming an educator officially. And it was a no-brainer once I realised that the satisfaction was in creating and how, as a freelance artist, you're often told to tweak and change your creations to fit someone else's brief, which is fine, you know, that's a job. But that satisfaction that I glean from creating something is about expression. And uh, I realised, wow, I can have a classroom. I can have um, all, you know, these fresh minds to say, yeah. don't listen to that person who says they can't draw. Or, you know, there's a lot of insecurities that we impart onto children without realising. And that was it for me. It was obviously this is the path I want to go because this is the satisfaction I get from it and also the satisfaction from teaching children to or showing them you know teaching them how to see their own abilities and, and self-worth and a lot of um, what I do is centers around that is helping children to recognize their own self-worth because not all of them are going to get it in school um, as the system is set up currently I mean it's getting better um, definitely the funding in Victoria, 1.6 billion going into diversifying the disability support funding, yep. which will encompass children with dyslexia and other learning difficulties. So that's really exciting. That's coming over the next five years. Amazing. Um, I mean, let, let's delve deeper into this. Uh, explain to me what language lead learning means. Language led learning, apologies. That's okay. Yeah, so language-led learning um, sometimes gets a bit misunderstood. <laughs> it can seem like it's all about language. It certainly encompasses, encompasses language and literacy. But language shapes culture. Um, anyone who has learned another language um, can testify to that. It, it shapes your thoughts. It shapes culture. And so the value of language, the importance of it, uh, is key to helping children learn. So it's an extension on... Uh, you know, the idea that learning leads development. So, you know, what leads learning and, and language is often it. Um, so it includes um, definitely social and emotional development is very much a part of that. Uh, our emotional development, it's the language we use with ourselves, our inner voice. Uh, for social, it's how we, the language we use with other people to negotiate conflict and, you know, other social situations and in the early years. Often it's the first time that these emotions are coming up in a social setting with, with peers and 
as educators, I think we have a responsibility to help every child learn to deal with those emotions the first time they have to share the truck or, you know, and and there are explicit strategies and that's something that's come out from the E for Kids study um, run by Melbourne Uni and the Queensland government. There's a few people involved in that. Um, So the findings in that found that instructional support was lacking in around 87% of centres. Emotional support was at a you know, hi, there was a lot of that going on and room organisation was was great, but there's a real need for more instruction, you know, intentional teaching, so to speak, and um, it doesn't need to take the place of play. I think it's often, you know, another area that's misunderstood that uh, there are some key strategies and I think there is a need to teach explicit strategies in social and emotional development uh, beyond, you know, um, just including it Um, learning how to recognise facial expressions. You know, we've got to teach how these emotions feel and uh, using stories and meaning-making, we can definitely incorporate play, you know, make play the centre of that. So you mentioned before earlier as well that, I mean, sort of stuck out to I don't think you had mentioned this to me before, but... um, almost stereotyping from an early age saying, you know, the sporty one, yes. uh, the, the smart one, the creative one, how obviously, you know, it's always good to receive compliments and obviously encourage children, but how, I guess, is that, can that be more damaging at times then? Is that what you're potentially saying? I think it can be um, because children sometimes pay more attention to what is said about them around them than what is said to them that oh you know you're really good at this or that they definitely pay attention to that as well but they're as they're building their identities particularly around you know age three and four and again later around 12 you know all through but these critical periods uh where they're listening and, and language is a really strong feature just be conscious be mindful that a child will use the opinions of those they love and those who love them um, as a reference for, you know, their sense of identity as they're building. So we've just got to be conscious of that, I think, and also recognise that um, children are growing and their sense of identity is evolving all the time. And, um, yeah, so more limiting, you know, because we, we often, uh, you know, if we're conscious, we'll give them positive um, positive sense of identity, you know, the sporty one or whatever we consider to be a positive in our own, you know, culture. But I think it's important to recognise it's, it's child-led learning, uh, that they might want to grow beyond that too. So using questions, which comes back to language as well, to determine what they're interested in. You know, it might not be the same as yesterday, as we know, working with young children. Yeah. Uh, it's very fluid. So could you give me an example of, you know, there are going to be lots of people listening out there who probably go, oh, I actually do that quite a lot. I often say, oh, you're so sporty or you're so creative. Um, what sort of tips would you say on how, how would you phrase that moving forward um, for anyone out there listening that, 
is going, yeah, I fit in that category. How would you phrase something like that if you want to give them a compliment, but also, you know, broaden their horizons at the same time? Yeah, good point. Um, I haven't thought that through exactly. I, I don't think it's detrimental at all. And, uh, you know, if it's affirming, I guess, listening, you know, starting with right. listening and uh, just being conscious that there might be more to the child than that one aspect. So, yeah, definitely give the compliments. But, um, you know, what we do in early childhood, we uh, give exposure to all sorts of stimuli and then observe and, and listen to the children and see what they do with those things. So just remaining receptive, I would say, um, to the child, you know, watching how they respond and perhaps hold off on introducing them as a certain personality trait, you know, oh, this is so-and-so and they're shy or, you know, they're sporty or, you know, just in include them in that discussion. I just remember feeling, you know, being introduced as shy and wanting to connect with somebody as a child and feeling like, oh, if, I, if I'm open and engaged now, it's going to seem odd because I've already got that label as shy. So right, those sorts right. of things. Yeah, I, I think it's fine to give compliments and recognise definitely, you know, the, yeah. the tributes and the successes of, of children, but also be conscious, you know, sometimes we talk about, and we all do it, no one's perfect. Oh, he's hopeless at this, he's hopeless at that. And the child sitting right there in the next room, they're, they're tuning into that, those conversations as well. Yeah. No, people still do that to me. So I, <laughs> I get that 100%. Um, and we do it to ourselves too, you know. Oh, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You we can't yourself. be too hard on ourselves, but it's just a matter of being conscious, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, talking about limiting and, um, and along those lines, you mentioned to me earlier as well and put in sort of the the pre-email for all this about the uh, how this affects children when they do standardized testing and um when it comes across the literacy or numeracy anything like that that they limit themselves because we often project onto them oh that's not their strength or or they create that themselves so uh, how damaging is that beyond you know moving to, throughout the years but early on as well i think it's really damaging for the different types of thinkers, I'll just put that in general terms, yeah. who aren't recognised in the standardised testing that goes on in schools. And there's a lot being done to extend that, extend recognition to other areas, which is great. I think we've still got a long way to go. And it's not the tests as such, like NAPLAN, that do the damage it's how we contextualize them and right. the subconscious you know messages that kids receive you know schools often use them you know there are disincentives to take on children who think differently because it will affect people using that plan as a way of gauging schools you know and so that's the sort of thing that i think needs to change um in that regard and also i think one of the potential areas where we can help children before they get to school is learning, contextualising, so having some perspective that what is recognised within the school system, there, there's more, there's more beyond that. And especially now, the world's changing and there's so many possibilities. So really contextualising it for young children that school is just one part of life. 
and there are ways that you can prepare for that and there are skills that you need for school and there are school, skills that you can use for school and life and one of those skills is knowing yourself and knowing your strengths and that comes back to metacognition which you know goes hand in hand oh, it really helps with social emotional development you need to have a sense of self in order to be able to self you know self-regulate your emotions and uh, engage with others and so there's a lot of opportunities um, for educators to scaffold that in the early years so I've you know during lockdown last year I've attempted to scope and sequence some of those explicit strategies in social emotional learning as well as emerging literacy because we know that uh, for children with dyslexia explicit strategies are really helpful and that doesn't mean to overload or you know um, you know extend traditional literacy curriculum you know to take the place of play but there are a couple of areas which are very helpful for children with dyslexia to know before going into school that just helps to contextualize an avalanche of information sometimes um, a few key areas that are helpful but across the board explicit strategies um, it's it's what's been shown you know 87 percent of centers can do more with and uh, it doesn't just have to be in the traditional literacies it, you know, explicit strategies for social and emotional skills and also for PDs, for educators as well, to upskill educators' social and emotional skills um, because then they're modelling those skills to the children and, as we know, children benefit from that as well. Yeah, I mean, some fantastic points we made and I have about a million more questions. So I'll try and, try and break down a few. I mean, you again, you just touched on dyslexia, which I mentioned earlier in the, that we're going to get into a little bit more. So now is probably a, a good time. What, what are some or what are the key areas of, of focus that, that you think are important for any educator working in early childhood or primary or secondary, you know, we can talk about across the field, but what are the key identifiers that people should be looking out for to go, all right, this, this child might have dyslexia or, or something common. Um, how can I deal with this or uh, what approaches should I be taking? Okay. So uh, I guess it's important to define dyslexia as difficulty with reading. So that can be with decoding or spelling um, often in early primary, you'll find difficulty with oral rhyming, dividing words into syllables, blending and segmenting sounds, delays in speech and language development. And it's not always every single one of these um, boxes is ticked. Yeah, of course. So of course. It's, it's, a, it's a bit hard to, to diagnose, um, which is why taking it, you know, but often children who get diagnosed later in life get told, oh, early intervention is the best thing you can do and that's what really prompted this was well how early do you go you know early intervention um, is there a problem with including this learning in the whole cohort that's the, the true meaning of inclusiveness is for every child right. and it's um, you know there are a few very basic key areas that help that are of benefit to all the children um, so limited vocabulary sometimes memory problems um, but sometimes not. 
uh, there's an adult, I have a, a friend who um, did an interview with me, it was fantastic and I think, um, which reminds me of one of the main points, you know, to ask the child. I think often what is a common frustration and children tend to hide is that they require more instruction, they right. require more time. And so if a child's taking a long time to get something or sometimes if they're playing up, um, you'll, you'll often hear people with dyslexia, um, yeah. adults talking about, well, I'd rather be the naughty kid than the, you know, inverted commas, dumb kid. You know, they, so, you know, if there's a child playing up, don't assume that they're being naughty. Um, there could be something else going on there. And, uh, you know, also being conscious of um, their family influences as well. Some children, you know, if they've got pressures to excel academically within the family, they might be really shy. Even without those pressures, children with dyslexia tend to be hyper-conscious that they're different, that, you know, the child next to them just needed that to be told that once and they're still, you know, completely oblivious to what what they need to do. So if it seems like a, a child's off task in primary uh, or secondary, um, you know, looking out the window, uh, yeah, ask a few questions okay. and look out for those signs of memory issues or problem decoding, um, accessing, you know, being able to read, so forth. And in terms of today's standards, I guess, how openly is it discussed or uh, talked about or, you know, are the children fully aware? Again, I go back to, to my experience that it was almost better for me for me to be told, no, you're fine, there's nothing wrong, um, and me just be confused partially a lot of the time instead of just being open and, and having me understand what the issue was. So is it openly discussed with the child or, uh, you know, is it still taboo, I guess, in almost to, to bring up or what, what's the circumstances out there currently? There's a whole range of uh, circumstances, really, um, from best to worst case scenario in my experience. Um, so definitely education is a big part of it. Um, the educators understanding exactly what it is. I think common misconception um, in the community at large is a problem. Um, also, you know, the way that people, you know, joke that uh, not being able to spell somehow reflects on intelligence or to read these right. sort of um, outdated notions. Um, my friend tells a story how, you know, she misspelt Denise to Dennis once in the office and, you know, that was cause of big laughs and she was laughing along but later she went into the toilet and cried and never went back to that job. So right. just little things yeah. like that yeah. um, being conscious of uh, I think is important. Yeah, you don't, you don't see the outcomes. Uh, so if someone, again, someone listening to this, an educator going, yeah, I don't know enough about it, I would like to know more. What? How would you say for them to get started just to understand it a bit better or how to deal with it better when they're working with children? Uh, there's lots of ways. So 
um, reaching out to families and the child as well, because this impacts on the emotions. Uh, it taps into the social emotional uh, learning and strategies. So um, one of the first ways that we can do this in early childhood is ensuring that the child feels able and open to asking for help. That was one of the things that surprised me in test driving the school readiness assessment I put together uh, and is now a part of the program is that, you know, a small percentage of children who didn't understand the task, the particular task, uh, asked for help. Some of them would say, I don't understand. So yeah, ensuring that the child feels open. That, so letting them know that dyslexia has strengths attached to it. You know, 40% yeah, of entrepreneurs, you know, the ability to see the big picture, to think visually. So we see artists um, with this and you say you, you suffered from dyslexia and you did suffer as a result of the, the way the system's set up. Um, it's It's got a lot of strengths and I think it's really important. One of the ways that we can help children is to recognise, hey, there's another side to this coin, you know, because the um, the downside they're very aware of and wow. learning them, yeah, teaching them those metacognition strategies of knowing yourself, knowing your triggers, um, knowing your strengths, knowing what brings you back. And that's another area where we can help children in the early years is, you know, through a drawing, you know, what's something that makes you happy, getting them focused on ways that they can regulate their emotions. And that's definitely something, uh, a way that educators can help all children, but particularly those with dyslexia, what kind of conditions are conducive to you learning? For some, it, it might be having their music playing. They might need, you know, quiet space to learn or, you know, tapping into that and also using the families as a resource including them in the conversation and all of that also sends a message of support that yeah. there's strength, you know, there's another side to, to this coin, this dyslexia, but also there's support, there's recognition and support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, it does come back to the, uh, the parents might think it's almost better off for the, for the child not to know because he might not, or he or she might not understand or, um so just don't tell them anything but they get more and more confused and it sort of snowballs effects and you know we'll definitely move on and we've mentioned it already the importance of having this discussion early and and working alongside it early so it doesn't snowball into primary secondary work life you know future all the way through yes and it, and it does pop up in families there, there is some genetic link so you know, if it is in the family, definitely be aware that it, it might be more prevalent and, you know, track that in your child or, you know, any child and, yeah, recognise the need to contextualise it in a positive way. It's not something that needs to be, they need to be ashamed of or hidden and sometimes in schools that can, you know, be inadvertently communicated. Just, come on, we've got five minutes, you know, we need to keep up and uh, that can sometimes send a child with dyslexia you know to disengage further and you know really rattles them that's another common feature as well is the the more flustered they get the the worse they perform so it really is in the teacher's interests if you know when the goal is okay we need to make visible what 
knowledge this child has. Um, yeah, creating conditions that are conducive to them demonstrating that should be the goal, number one. But also, yes, definitely including them in that conversation from a young age that, hey, this might be it. And it's how we communicate that, not, oh, does he have dyslexia or, you know, just, oh, this is something that we have in our family and you might have it too. And it also means, you know, you might be good at this and this and this. So they can attach it to a positive. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. So as well, we, we've touched on a little bit the you know, social and emotional development and um, that's something as well you're, you're hugely passionate in. Mm. How important is that this year after the year we've had 2020? Um, how important is that now not to just kids who are already struggling and probably further behind than where they were, but, you know, all children, even children who were succeeding at that um, after a year like we've just had? I think, yeah, it's really, you know, the positive side of that is it's it's brought it to the fore, the need for us to have conversations and uh, and talk about what we've been through. And, you know, the positive side is that we've gone through it together and to to listen to children and, you know, to uh, listen to the impact that it's had on them. And I think now after this recent lockdown, you know, subconsciously a lot of us had kind of attributed it to 2020 and we're over that now, you know, yeah. uh, because it's still, it's going to be part of life for a while. And so children look to us for security. And this is something that no one's got answers definitively um, about how long or how much it's going to impact on us. So it's really hard to, to give them that honestly, but what we can do is to be open and honest and that gives assurance to keep those communication lines going uh not just with children but with everybody check in how are you going you know those sorts of questions help to create a sense of security even when there's not a lot of security around uh, yeah you know, not a lot of certainty around how long or how much things are going to affect us just talking through well this is happening and this happened before you know we got through last year and we developed some skills so contextualizing everything i think helps a lot and uh, i mean with educators as well i think it's really important to to recognize uh that edu our educators have been affected as well and uh to extend those conversations to include them and the families a whole community but uh particularly you know even using the early years learning framework in the context of educators, you know, to extend those, you know, sense of identity within the workplace and, you know, communicating effectively, building those skills, making sure that educators have a sense of being and becoming and, and belonging to the um, childcare centre or the kindergarten, that you can apply that same framework to your educators and that that helps to build a sense of community and then that extends that flows on to the children and the families as well right so it's i say honestly being the the best policy i guess and mm. sharing your feelings and and being open with the children uh, you know home especially um 
uh, you know, we obviously deal with a lot of casual educators, them being free to do it as well and saying, yeah, I struggled also. It was tough, but we got through it, maybe having those conversations. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it is about getting rid of the shame. I think going back to dyslexia as well, um, and my friend sharing her story, that the takeaway from that interview was her life turned around and she's gainfully employed and living a full life and that turned around when she owned it when she said this is happening just let the shame go that was really as a result of you know conditioning and um her past experiences and i think the same thing applies here is just accepting that we've gone through something really tough and realizing that the kids have gone through it in their own way um we've we try to protect them from it, but they've also gone through it as well. And just listening, being receptive to how it's affected them, because we don't know unless we ask and listen and um, include them in the conversation. And we can do that honestly in a, you know, different ways uh, and creatively. You know, it's a wonderful way to do that. Um, we talked about metacognition impacting social emotional development uh, and a physical. Um, you know, physical development has a knock-on effect with cognitive development, as does you know attention and engagement. Uh, so, you know, including nature, you know, going outside, you know, outdoor learning, bush kinder, these sorts of things, but also diversifying those outdoor environments can be conducive to helping children socially and emotionally, and just provide a a context for learning where. You don't even have to bring provisions a lot of the time. Everything's yeah. right there in nature, and it's also yeah. conducive to having these talks and and well-being, of course. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I asked about educators before if if they were wanting to get more insight or or anything like that. What about any services listening to this now? Um, thinking, oh, we don't really have a strong enough program for that, or we're part of that, I think you said 87%, um, they could be doing more. Mm. Are there a, a few simple steps? Obviously, we've spoken about a few talking through, but is there, you know, for a service themselves looking to improve, what, what would you suggest for them if you have any ideas? Well, certainly the planning, look, looking to, you know, the goals, and that often includes the children who are coming in, so a lot of centres already use that to drive, you know, where their, their funding is going. So I think it's really important to look at the individual needs within the centre, within the community, uh, and also, you know, addressing the systemic dysfunction that blocks inclusion. That's another area. Um, being conscious, I guess, of where children are going, where they've come from, and also where they're going, as well as what you're providing. So contextualizing that thinking about children's backgrounds which you know we do as educators anyhow uh, and also looking at all those influences on them with I guess if there's if you could simplify it down it's to strengthen their sense of self-worth and belief because that's what's going to get them through yeah, and that's about life readiness you know you, you want them to go 
through school and, and some will excel more than others at school. So you want to bolster all children, but especially those who are going to feel a bit kicked around by the system. Yeah. You want to strengthen their sense of self-worth to survive that because um, it's it's 40% of uh, entrepreneurs who have dyslexia, but also 40% of prisoners. So if you look at that, what happens there around the teenage years? Some of them believed in themselves and yeah. some of them yeah. just went the, you know. Well, that, is, that is interesting. And, you know, that's a very broad general um, statistic there. Uh, and there's yeah. a lot of tricacies involved, but it's just to affirm self-belief and strong sense of self um, are really important. And I'm honestly really excited for people who think differently the way that the world's going and with technology. There's a there's a lot of ways that technology can bridge the gaps. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, the spectrum, children on the spectrum as well, and um, definitely dyslexia. There are some really exciting programs and much more recognition and the funding that's going into schools now definitely it's in contrast but i think one of the biggest issues is uh, you know educators understanding of dyslexia so i think you know there needs to be some effort going into educating educators about what it is the the intricacies not just oh they've got difficulty in reading educating about the strategies that help so looking at um you know, they might need extended time to complete a task. The negative impact of rushing, you know, child with dyslexia, these little things can make a big difference um, as well. Uh, targeting funding and also ensuring that the changes are sustained. So being able to say, hey, I, I don't know about this and, and not be ashamed of that. No, none of right. us have all the answers. And so when you, when you don't feel completely confident, research, um, reach out find an expert, bring them in. And uh, I think that's where the world's going anyhow. We've got a lot of specialists and, you know, they're networking to create a, a fuller education. Amazing. Well, yeah, big things to come, I think, in that field. So hopefully it uh, swings the right way. Now, one final thing I wanted to potentially discuss with you, you are I don't know if it's confirmed yet, but maybe starting a study. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I'd like to, even if it's retrospective. I don't know if I'll get it officially organised for the start of next year. I'm working with Dandenong Day Nursery and Monash Childcare, uh, running the school readiness slash life readiness skills program, which incorporates social emotional learning and also some emerging literacy skills. So at Dandenong Day Nursery, uh, upskilling the educators uh, to understand just a few key points regarding emerging literacy more towards the end of the year as the children do their transition program, the four-year-old kinder, and also explicit social emotional strategies based on the needs within the cohort, obviously. And through lockdown, I connected with some experts myself because uh, Excel is certainly not my superpower. So finding ways, I know that technology can do more than I can make it do. So devising strategies to make it easier for educators to match up the needs of children with strategies as well as experiences 
and finding ways to tailor those to the specific needs of children and, and centres and educators, just tailoring as much as possible. So that's a work in progress and hopefully it's a longitudinal study so we can track children who may have dyslexia in the family, uh, families who want to get involved uh, within those centres. Uh, definitely will be open to whatever they're open to as well. So it's, it's a conversation at this point, but definitely I'd like to provide some evidence behind my claims that there are certain key strategies when taught explicitly from a young age have a protective effect on children as they, especially those who are, you know, more inclined to struggle through traditional school settings. So that's the hope. Amazing. All right. Well, we'll have to keep up to date for that one. Look, I know we've we've gone through a lot today. Um, I'm sure we could just go another hour. <laughs> no worries at all. So I think we're going to book in a part two. Um, you know, we, I'm sure this is going to be a popular subject. You know, I know it's something that's been requested before. Um, th there's tons to go through. So I think we need to yeah, look in for maybe later in the year, see how things are tracking, um, yeah, keeping up to date. I also wanted to touch on, we I shared a video with you about the the kid in, and you've mentioned it a few times, this, this superpower, um, yes. uh, dyslexia, not being afraid of it and, and using it to your advantage. Um, that there was a video of a kid in the UK who says it's his superpower and um, you know, he uses it to his full advantage. So I'll link that video somewhere through here as well, because that's definitely worth a watch for anyone in education, anyone really across that is working with children or you know, basically across the board. Um, so I will share that because that's a, a great thing you you referenced to the, it being a superpower. So I'll get that in there. But Ange, is there anything else you wanted to go through before we finish up? No, that's lovely. Um, I'll forward some links to you too regarding the funding, the 1.6 billion that was only announced in, in November last year. And there's some pilot programs going into that to make sure it's effective, as well as the e for kids study where that data came out about the 87% of centres. Right, yep, perfect. Intentional teaching and so forth. So anything that I've referenced, and I didn't quite get on to Younger Porter's Eight Ways, the Indigenous uh, curriculum, which supports a lot of these social, emotional wellbeing um, that hopefully will get a lot more airtime in uh, early childhood. And also um, there was the link, I think I sent you a link back regarding Vincent Van Tuzo. Tuzo, yes. excuse me for saying that wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I did get uh, that one. There's an amazing episode uh, of Australian Story, I think it is, just half an hour um, about Vincent, the artist, and his story of growing up with dyslexia and the importance of, of owning our superpowers. <laughs> Yeah, great. Well, I'll link everything back for everyone to be able to watch back. Um, that's everyone's homework to watch it before the next podcast. Um, but I will link everything that you send through in a, in a couple of separate things. Um, but Ange, thank you again so much for joining me today. It was great to chat to you. Um, and good luck with everything in the in the future. Thanks, Kyle. You too. I look forward right. to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. Can't wait. 
Again, thank you so much to Ange for joining me today. It was a pleasure to sit down with her and get a better insight into the important use of language, especially at an early childhood setting. If you want to hear more from Ange, let me know. Feel free to send an email through to kale.t at anzuk.education. Of course, if you have any other things you would like to hear about or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, please reach out and send us through some feedback. That would be amazing. Well, that's all we have time for today. I look forward to seeing you in a fortnight's time. Have a great one. Bye.